right. Well, once again, welcome. Good morning. It's good to have you here. So what is an irrational superstition that you may or may not have? I know uh, a few weeks ago, a couple weeks ago, many of you know uh, that, uh, you know, I, because I'm a follower of the Lord Jesus, I'm also a Boston Red Sox fan. And so, uh, okay, <laughs> a few of you are like, that's not funny. Um, I also like the Padres. I've come around. I, I like them as well. So, but I, because I, we were watching the Red Sox a few weeks ago, and they're in this battle against, um, against the Devils team, the Yankees, and, uh, and the, the, this game was an important series because we were kind of tied going into the playoffs, and there's a point in the game, the Red Sox were winning, and they decided to make a pitching change, which I don't know why the manager doesn't call me before he makes decisions, because I'm like, you don't, don't do this, and I said to my house, we're watching the game, and I said, here's what's going to happen, this batter's going to walk, and the next guy's going to hit a grand slam. And everyone in my house said, don't say that. I'm like, well, I just, I'm just telling you, I'm preaching the truth in love. And the very next batter walked, and then the next pitch, it was a grand slam. And, and everyone in my house said, why did you say that? As soon as you said it, it happened. And, and, and because I had to say, like, well, I don't think what I say here in Encinitas actually affects what happens in the game. I don't think fully. I'm not 100%. I'm like 80% on that. <laughs> But it's funny how it, there's this everything in sports, and I was a baseball guy, and baseball's the most superstitious one of all, right? If, if someone's throwing a no-hitter, you can't, don't, don't say anything about it, because if somehow God finds out that a no-hitter's happening, it's going to be over right away. And, and it's interesting how many little things that we have in our lives like that. Now, on sports, it's fun. We can laugh about it. But a question that we want to address today that we see in this passage today is, are there times when we kind of treat God as our good luck charm? When we kind of approach our faith as, okay, if I do the right things or if I'm in good with God and then the Red Sox probably will win, which may or may not be true. I'm still testing it as well. But how many of us think that way? And what are the times in our lives when we see God as maybe a good luck charm? Because the story we're going to read today is one of this, a bizarre story in the New Testament, and our series is called Family Stories. We're calling it Family Stories because it's the stories of the early church. It's the stories of our ancestors in the faith, for those of us who are Christians. We get to see how they were learning about this faith, how they were living in this world, and the things that they were struggling with and working through. And one of the things that we will see today is that they're working in this culture in Ephesus that really was involved in all kinds of superstition and different things. And they were wrestling with, wait, where's the real power and where does that belong? So that's where we're going today. And I want to invite you to open your Bibles into the book of Acts chapter 19. And that's where we're going to be today. And as you find your way there or turn your Bibles on or whatever you need to do, would you pray with me as we get started? Lord God, we thank you so much for today. I thank you uh, for the joy of being together. We thank you for the reminder uh, in the music that we sang today and as we expressed our worship through song, God, that just brought us back to this reminder that, Lord, when we turn to you, that fear cannot survive. When we align our hearts with who you are and we understand where true power comes from, God, then we are able to live this life with more freedom. We can live this life with more joy. We can experience your presence, God. Be who you've made us to be. So we thank you for that. And I pray now as we turn to your word and we read a story that maybe is unfamiliar to many of us. 
maybe it's hard to understand, Lord, would you use it to shape us, to change us, to help us know you more? We give you this time. Amen. All right, Acts chapter 19. We're going to pick it up in verse 8 right here. And uh, just to get you caught up to speed, in verse 8 of chapter 19, Paul uh, has been teaching in different churches around uh, the Greco-Roman world in this area now we call Asia Minor, or what, this is really modern-day Turkey. This is a city called Ephesus that he's in now. And he's been teaching. He typically will go into the synagogues, and he'll teach among uh, the Jewish believers or the Jews, and, and to point to them to the Hebrew scriptures of how Jesus is the fulfillment of their scriptures. So many, many Jews are becoming Christians through the ministry of Paul. And also we find many Greeks are as well. So verse 8, he's again in Ephesus, and here's what's going on. Paul entered the synagogue, and he continued speaking out boldly for three months, having discussions and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some were becoming hardened and disobedient, Speaking evil of the way before the people, he withdrew from them, and he took the disciples away with him, and he had discussions daily at the school of Tyrannus. This took place for two years, so that all who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. So really quickly, so he's teaching in the synagogue, he's in Ephesus, after some time, the people who were going to convert, the people who believed this message, who were persuaded, were convinced. They said, okay, we, we'll become Christians. And then those who wouldn't be persuaded, who, their hearts were hardened, eventually got to this point where he says, okay, there's no one else here who is, who is hearing this truth, so we're going to leave here. They're speaking evil of the way. It's causing too much division and strife, so let's leave here. And they went, and he, he taught in the school of Tyrannus, which, yes, is where we get the word tyrant, so that guy's nickname. It's a good nickname, isn't it? Um, what it probably is, it's either a building owned by him, or there's a lot of philosophers in Ephesus. So it could have been that he, he taught a philosophy school, um, but usually by about 11 in the morning, they would stop teaching, and then Paul and the Christians used that building the rest of the afternoon. That's what's happening here. So nothing significant other than he gave a real location. Again, when Luke gives real names and real locations, his intention is that you say, oh, let me go check that out myself, which in the first century, they could do that. Verse 11, God was performing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that the handkerchiefs or aprons were even carried from his body to the sick, and diseases left them, and evil spirits went out. Okay, I, I don't know. Let's just stop right there. Uh, does this kind of seem a little odd to you? That even Paul, he's preaching, he's teaching about Jesus, and people, they said they're taking handkerchiefs and aprons from his body. What that literally means is, remember, he was a leather worker. He, he made tents. And so this is, one of them is his headband, his sweatband, that he would be done working, set it down, and go in to teach, and people would go, take Paul's sweatband. And it would be like taking LeBron James' you know, sweatband, like, I'm never washing my hand again. This is awesome. So they took that, and then they would go and bring that. And then apron was the apron that he'd use when he was work making tents. So they'd take, steal his clothes and bring it somewhere to people who were sick. And diseases were leaving them, and they were being healed. Paul wasn't doing that on purpose. He wasn't saying, hey, I don't have time. Here, have my sweatband. Go heal somebody. They were taking it. And being healed. That's strange. Okay, that's bizarre. That, that, that doesn't even make sense to me. So when we read that, we think, well, why, why was that working? Because we don't see this happen anywhere else in Scripture. There's a, there's a couple times where something's similar. We have a, a prophet, Elisha, in the Old, uh, Old Testament, 
where it took his mantle, and that went to heal somebody. That was kind of one of his robes. But it's not a comment. So why did God work this way? What was going on? Because God moved in unusual ways here to communicate to an unusual culture. There's a reason why he was showing up and doing this in this particular instant, because it spoke to the people of Ephesus in a way that they understood. Now, let me tell you what I mean. So first, we need a little, a little context of the story. So first thing I want you to see is Ephesus was a city of magic, spirituality, and superstition. So Ephesus was a city of magic, spirituality, and superstition. They were known to, uh, they, they possessed here in Ephesus, they had this temple uh, to Artemis, or, or in Rome, or in Latin, it was called the temple to the goddess Diana, and so it was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, this gigantic temple, uh, and it was uh, like three or four times the size of the Parthenon in Athens, so think of the size of this. So they were very spiritual, and even to this day, if you visit the ancient city of Ephesus, they have these little statues to the goddess Artemis. They're replications, obviously, of the, what they would have been experiencing at this time. So very spiritual in that way. Uh, it was a center, there's about 200,000 people living there, so it was a center of a lot of different thought, a lot of religion, a lot of philosophy, a lot of faith. Different faiths. But they were also into magic, Ephesus was known as a place where people would go, and they had something called the Ephesia Grammata, which essentially is the Ephesian writings. And the Ephesian writings referred to magical incantations that were common in Ephesus, where people would travel to Ephesus. They would buy these things. It would be on a piece of paper. They would roll them up and put them in little amulets, or they'd come and they'd use them to bring them to back to wherever they were to try to... Uh, conjure up some sort of healing or things like that. So this was common. You would travel to Ephesus, and it was big money to make these things, these incantations and stuff. We even have the Jewish historian named Josephus, who writes a lot about the first century, who talks about how in Ephesus, the Jewish people were particularly known, they were especially famous for magic People would think, oh, go to the Jews because they have a certain angle on power there and we'd go to Ephesus. So even Josephus, speaking about the ancient world, talked about how much in Ephesus magic was a big deal. Now, just, let's paint the picture a little bit and let you see um, kind of what the city of Ephesus looks like today and what we think it did. So we have some images. Those are always fun. Uh, here's a, a picture. This is the, one of the main streets in Ephesus. Remember, it's a 200,000-person city. Uh, this is one of, the, one of my favorite cities that I've been to to dig around in. I am an archaeological uh, nerd, so archaeology nerd, so I love that kind of stuff. But this is what the artists believe it looked like. The next one will show you that same city. Now, this, is, this has been extensively excavated, and so we know that they use these kind of paints and dyes. Um, those are not people. Those are statues sitting there. Um, and uh, so this is what the city would look like in the time of Paul. Go to the next one. This is the temple uh, of this, one of the seven ancient wonders of the world, the temple to Artemis, the goddess Artemis. And artist rendering is the next one. We'll show you what it most likely looked like in there. And there's a fantastic B&B that my wife and I stayed at just off to the right. It's really good. So I uh, had a great time there. And then the next one, this we will come up next time we come back to the book of Ephesians. This is the amphitheater. 
that fit, uh, I think 25,000 people could fit in this amphitheater. And this is where a riot will take place or start to take place in our next passage that we'll get to the next time. So this is, and this one's been extensively excavated as well. So this gives you kind of a picture of the scope of it, and you can see um, just how cosmopolitan this place was. And it's known, let's go there and let's find healing. And you can see the, the uh, marina in the background there is no longer here to this day. In fact, Ephesus died as a city because all of the silt from the river kept pouring into there and they no longer were a port city. So you can't even see that to this day. It's another mile or two away. So that's Ephesus. So let's go back to the text now. Keeping in mind, this is what it looks like. They're into magic. Now go to verse 13. Some of the Jewish exorcists, okay, even stranger maybe, right? The only time this word is used in the New Testament. Now we have a Jewish exorcist. They went place to place. They attempted to use the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I order you in the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches. Now, there were seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, doing this. But the evil, the evil spirit responded to them and said, I recognize Jesus, and I know of Paul, but who are you? This is the, uh, the original Southwest Airlines commercial, Do You Want to Get Away? This is, this is one of those moments where you just realize, oh, what did I just do? So you can picture this now. You have these Jewish exorcists. Again, Josephus, the historian, said that Jews were particularly known to be successful in Ephesus. And they have this guy, these seven sons of Sceva, and he said he's a chief priest. By the way, he's not a priest in Jerusalem. He may not even actually be of the priestly family. He gave himself the title, I'm a chief priest. So he's not in any history records as far as having real legitimacy to any sort of priesthood. But he's there, he's known, he gives himself the title. I'm one of the chief priests of the Jews who's going to question him. He and his seven sons have this lucrative business of going and pre praying for people and providing for them hope that maybe they received it or did not. But interesting that they hear, they see that people are being healed by Paul. And these Christians who are praying and who are learning about Jesus, they're seeing something powerful happen among the Christian community. So they, being entrepreneurs, say, oh, do you want to make a little bit more money? It sounds like this Jesus guy, this God Jesus who they're preaching, seems to have some real power. So they encounter someone with an evil spirit, and they say, hey, in the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches, isn't that an interesting way to do it? We command you to come out. And the evil spirit turns on them and says, I know Jesus, I know Paul, but who do you think you are? That's an odd moment. One more idea of context of this story. So the name of Jesus was known to be powerful in Ephesus. We found this document called the Paris Pap uh, Papyri, sorry, and it's actually some of the uh, prayers or even you could say the incantations that were being read in Ephesus. And let me read these to you. Here's one of them. It says, I abjure you by Jesus, the God of the Hebrews. Another one says this, Hail God of Abraham, hail God of Isaac, hail God of Jacob, Jesus Christ, Holy Spirit, Son of the Father. 
So outside of the Christian world, you still had in Ephesus this belief that, wait a minute, this God that Paul's been preaching about, this God that's creating this incredible movement of new believers is a powerful God. So the name of Jesus was known to, to contain great power. So it makes sense that those who are making money off of incantations and magic and all of that stuff, whether they were successful or not, they gave the impression of being successful and they made money and they were using the name of Jesus to do so. So, verse 16, how is it? So this spirit turns to him and says, I don't know who you are. And now look at verse 16. And the man in whom was the evil spirit pounced on the seven sons of Sceva, subdued all of them and overpowered them, so they fled out of that house naked and wounded. This became known to all who lived in Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of Jesus was being magnified. So again, picture the story. Oh yeah, we pulled out the big guns here. Here's, here's the seven sons of Sceva. These are the ones who, yeah, they, they know what they're doing. They go into this house where someone has this evil spirit and all of a sudden the spirit turns on them and the next thing you see is everyone is running out of the house naked and wounded, which I don't know what kind of fight that was, what that looks like. <laughs> but that's, that story is gonna get around. Just say it that way, Right? You're going to think like, hey, did you guys see those seven guys running down the street naked? Was that, you know, is it pledge week at a college? What's going on here? Oh, no, it was. Those guys were trying to use the name of Jesus, and it turned on them. It didn't work. And then fear fell upon them. You think? <laughs> Verse 18. And we'll come back to talk about what this means in a moment. But also, many of those who believed kept coming, confessing, and disclosing their practices. Many of those who practiced magic brought their books together and began burning them in the sight of everyone. They added up the prices of the books and found it to be 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord was growing and prevailing mightily. 50,000 pieces of silver essentially was a day's wage for 50,000 different people. So we have this story that maybe you've heard before, maybe you haven't, but it's bizarre. <laughs> it's strange. And I love that Luke uses real names and real locations because he wanted the first century people to go and check it out from themselves. And they'd go to Ephesus and go like, oh yeah, no, we know that story. We heard what happened. But as we look at the story today, just a few thoughts for us as we think, how should we respond to this? Like, what, how do we apply this? Because my guess is most of you probably aren't going home and saying like, oh, I got to stop with the magic. I got to just, no more incantations in our house. Probably most of you. And if not you, please stop with that, okay? This should be enough. But what can we learn from it? And there's a few things. The first one I want you to see here is this. Let's beware of counterfeits in our lives. See, what was happening in Ephesus is they knew that there was power in the name of Jesus. There was this idea that God was doing something amazing among them. But very quickly, they turned to counterfeits. In fact, they were turning to a counterfeit beforehand. But they were turning to it and saying like, oh, what, what is a good imitation of what's happening here? 
So they turn to these incantations, to magic, to human-made ideas, to even the evil spiritual world, which we'll see in a moment. But they were settling for the lesser thing to provide what only God can provide. Now, for many of us in this room, we'd say, well, I, I don't turn to magic. But what do we turn to? What are the lesser things that we look to to provide for us what only God can provide? Now, in some respects, there's, there's maybe one of the more easier kind of low-hanging fruit one is we know that forgiveness comes to us through Jesus Christ. We know that because of his death and resurrection, Jesus provides a way for us to be forgiven of our sins and to have friendship with God. We call it reconciled with God. Jesus does that for us. But there's this subtle little counterfeit that pops up in our lives sometimes, this counterfeit belief, where maybe our prayers sometimes look like, Lord, if you would just, I know I did this again, but if you would forgive me for this, just one more time, I promise I won't do that ever again. Now, it seems like an innocent prayer. But what that prayer is saying, we're settling for a lesser belief in God's grace. We're settling for a lesser uh, belief in what he actually accomplished on the cross. We're saying, hey, there's this transaction. If you do this for me, then, then, Lord, then I will be this for you. It's a subtle one. Maybe a little bit more, or same, subtle, but that we all could recognize, or some of the counterfeits in our life. Where do we find our security? Where do we find our significance? The struggle of those of us raising kids, or maybe you've raised kids. How many of us find our significance in our kids and their success in the classroom? Man, if my kids don't attain to a certain d degree and they don't get the, the, the right grades, they don't get in the right college, and they don't have the right career, and then everything's messed up. The rest of my life is messed up. Now, if I asked you face-to-face, -face, none of you would say you believed that, but do we actually believe that? Trust me, from my years of coaching, I know that many parents are riding their whole family future on their seven-year-old's ability to pitch. <laughs> I see it. Like, oh, do you think I need to have them in three travel ball teams? I think, no, you need to have them in none. <laughs> Let him be a kid for a minute, and he'll be a better pitcher. Trust me. But I've had parent after parent tell me this. But if I don't put him in these things now, everyone's going to be better than him, and he'll never get ahead. He'll never play high school baseball. I'm running out of time. And I just think, I don't know. My guess is some of the best baseball players ever were still riding their big wheels when your kid is at travel ball. But we put our hope in those lesser things. Why? Because ultimately... If my kid isn't feeling successful, if my kid doesn't feel like he's something, then maybe I failed and I'm not something. So subtle. But it's the lesser things. We turn to all these lesser things to provide for us. Maybe for you, it's your retirement portfolio. I know that seems too cliche, but how many of you does your hopes rise and fall on how much leisure you're going to have in retirement? How much does it affect you? We're settling for counterfeits. So with these, I would just challenge us, check our hearts. What are the things that cause you to lose sleep at night when they don't go the way you, or aren't going the way you want them to go? It's often a good heart check. 
Now, if you're up at night saying like, oh, I just, I'm so passionate about Jesus and what he's doing in me, and, and I love, I just want to see my kids know him more, and my neighbors, I have a heart that's broken for the lost. If that's keeping you up at night, that's awesome. I love that. But most of us, what keeps us up at night is, are not those things. That's not always the case, but think of it. That could be an example of us giving our hearts to lesser things, looking for hope in lesser things. That's what was happening in Ephesus. So that's the first thing. Beware of counterfeits. The next one is this. Recognize where the real battle lies. Notice this, this uh, showdown, this story, really isn't about the sons of Sceva. It's really not about people being healed by handkerchiefs and aprons. This story is actually introducing us to this idea of a spiritual world. And it's kind of a scary story. And notice when he, the first century writers are writing this, they didn't explain it. They didn't say like, oh, okay, so some people believe in evil spirits and all this. They just said, no, that an evil spirit did this. And that first century world went like, okay, what next? What happened? Because they understood that the world was a spiritual world filled with good and evil. Paul actually writes in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, he says this, Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but it's against the rulers, the powers, and against the world forces of darkness, against spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Notice where the real battle here is. It was a battle. It was a spiritual battle. Now, some of us, it's, we were even talking to the teaching team. Sometimes when you talk about the spiritual world, you kind of start feeling like, does this sound like we're kind of a backwoods kind of belief? And, and we have this fear of, of seeing, sounding or, or, or sounding too maybe superstitious or whatever, but there's a spiritual world. C.S. Lewis, I think, said it well when he's talking about demons and, and the devil and evil, and he said this, there are two equal and opposite heirs into which our race can fall about the devils or demons. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other error is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves, the devils, are equally pleased by both heirs. And they hail a materialist, so someone who says, I only believe what I see, or a magician, those who have an unhealthy belief in the evil world, with the same delight. See, the two errors we could have is to say, oh, all of this stuff is just hocus pocus and it doesn't exist and our world is just what you see. That's one error. The other error is to say, no, there's a spiritual world and to have this unhealthy fascination with that evil spiritual world. But we want to recognize that that's where the real battle lies. Did you know that our battle as Christians is not against politicians? Do you know that? It's not. And that, I'm so glad it's not, especially in a state where there is only one really way that usually the vote comes out, right? But that's not our battle. Our battle is not against politicians. Our battle is not against COVID regulations or the people who make them. It's not. Our battle isn't against logic that, or the supposed logic that we see or don't see happening in our world on both sides of the aisle, by the way. That's not where our battle lies. See, our battle that we're in is in the spiritual battle. It's not against even what 
our school board in California is telling our public schools to teach our kids. That's not where our battle... Now, is that a battle? Yes, it is. But the real enemy, it's a spiritual battle that we are fighting. Paul was writing in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. He was writing to, uh, to the church there. And they were struggling with forgiving and, and how to walk in grace with someone. And Paul said, hey, if you forgive him, I forgive him. I'm with you. We're going to re- remain united. And he says this in verse 11. He says, we're going to remain un- united so that no advantage would be taken of us by Satan. For we are not ignorant of his schemes. In fact, if you do a quick word search in your New Testament of the word devil, you're going to find verse after verse saying, beware of the devil's schemes. And in all of those, he doesn't say, oh, yeah, beware of his schemes. He's gonna, there's going to be political decisions against you. No, most of them are related to when you face persecution, when the government is against you, when you see things that don't go the way you think they need to go. Be careful that as Christians, you remain united, you love each other, and you focus on the good news of Jesus because that's the hope of the world, nothing else. Amen? So throughout scripture, we are told that yes, you're in a spiritual battle and recognize that. Make sure you are fighting against the right person. And the only way we can fight against the right evil forces is with the winner. That is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's where our hope is found. Here in this battle that we see in Ephesus. It wasn't even a battle, really. But it's interesting that they recognized right away where the real battle was. I believe that Satan wants to divide us more than anything as Christians. So effective to have people fighting, to have people saying, oh, I, I'm going to this church because their mask policy, or I'm going to this church because they, they're into vaccines and we're not. We're whatever it is. And, and so Christians start fighting. There's enough fighting in this world for us to fight. We need to say, we are fighting for Jesus that you may know him. And whether you're vaccinated or not, you need the Savior. You need Jesus. That's what we're going to fight for. And we're going to remain united and love each other, even with different perspectives, because at the end of the day, that's not the issue. So, we want to beware of counterfeits. We want to recognize the real battle. And the last one is this. Respond with a healthy fear of the Lord. Notice how the story ends. <laughs> when the seven sons of Sceva run out of the room, it says it became, in verse 17, became known to all who lived in Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them. But were they afraid of that evil spirit? Were they afraid of the demon? Fear fell upon them, and the name of the Lord Jesus was being magnified. Do you know who they feared? They feared the name of Jesus. They said, wait a minute. There's something, there's a power going on here, and Jesus is not one to be trifled with. Don't misuse his name. Don't think that he's your lucky charm, that he's going to give you what you want when you need it. Don't think that you can dabble the name of Jesus out there for your gain and your gain only. Oh, as healthy fear came upon them. We don't like to talk about fear of the Lord, do we? But notice this, people walked away not fearing demons, but they were fearing God. And the fear of the Lord led to changed hearts and freed minds. Their minds were changing. Look at how they responded. 
they responded in verse 18. Many of those who believed, you know who the, what they're talking about? Christians. There's Christians who were believing, kept coming and confessing and disclosing their practices. And many of those who practiced magic brought their books together and began burning them. This means there were Christians who became Christians and were still using magic and incantations and still giving their hearts to other things. And when they saw this, they had this new healthy fear of the Lord and said, oh, we have been taking you. We have not been taking you seriously. We just thought you were just another piece of the spiritual life. And the fear of the Lord led to changed hearts. Now, really quickly, a couple things about fear of the Lord. Because we don't like to talk about it because God is nice. He's good. He's always wearing a, a, holding a lamb and has a nice little clean sash on, right? That's Jesus. That's what we see in Scripture. So why fear Jesus? He's nice, and he is nice. He is loving. He is compassionate. And he's not one to be trifled with. A few verses to think about. Find here on the screen for you. We're told in Scripture multiple times, Proverbs 9, 10 being one of them, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The beginning of understanding and an upright life begins with a healthy fear of the Lord, a respect for who God is. We actually have Paul, right? He says, live out your salvation with fear and trembling. Don't, don't do try, just know who you're talking about. Know who this God is who you serve. Isaiah, when he, he gets this image of the temple of the Lord, you know what Isaiah says? He says, woe is me, which means I'm shaking in my boots. Now, with the fear of the Lord, we have a proper view of God will cause you to tremble. But it's not the same as being afraid. It's more than awe. It's not just being awe of God. But it's less than living in fear from, from what we could call the, the, the Santa Claus God, the he sees you when you're sleeping kind of God. So you, he knows if you've been bad or good, so be good for goodness sakes because he's going to get you. That's, that's a different kind of fear. That's, that's being afraid. That's a false fear of God. I, actually, look at some of these verses. Exodus 20, verse 20, Moses says this. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. For God has come in order to test you, in order that the fear of him may remain with you. So don't be afraid, but have the fear of the Lord. They're together. Next one we have, Paul writes this in Romans 8, 15. He says, you did not receive a spirit of slavery that returns you to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Meaning, you're not, you haven't been saved so that you can go back into being a slave to, you know, you know God's watching every move and he's going to get you with one bad step. That's being afraid, but fear is saying, oh, I know my Father. I know what he can do. I know the depth of his love, and I know the depth of his power and his strength. First John, first, uh, first John chapter 4, verse 18 says this, There's no fear in love, but perfect love dries out fear, because fear involves punishment, and the one who fears has not been perfected in love. In other words, what we're seeing here is that a fear of the Lord, there's a difference of, do you fear that God's grace is not enough for you? That's just being afraid. 
That's the wrong kind of fear. But do you fear that we are talking about the creator of the universe who's able to do all things, who holds the world in his hands, who can accomplish whatever he wants to accomplish and who is not to be trifled with because of his greatness and his grandeur. That's a kind of reverence and awe and respect that causes us to say, this is a big deal. And I don't know about you, but I, I, kind, of, I kind of don't want to follow the flannel graph Jesus who's always holding a little lamb. It just doesn't seem like it works anymore. Anyone with me on that? I mean, this is the Jesus who says, I send you out among lambs, among the wolves. <laughs> He's a fearsome God. And when you're with him, we know the greatest truth we need to know. And let us know that the battle is already won. And as the uh, worship team starts making their way up, I want us to land on that. See, we can read about this and we can read about the spiritual world and think about it, and we should. But if we think about those things without the healthy knowledge and belief that the battle is already won, then we will fall short. Or then we will have an unhealthy fear. Then we're going to go the wrong way. The battle's already won. We want to land on that truth. And the battle's already won because we're told in Scripture when Jesus gave up his life for you and for me and for all of humanity that he once and for all crushed Satan and his schemes. That the power of sin and death was defeated once and for all that we were given a promise of life today and for eternity. The battle's already won. And you know what? Even when we turn to counterfeits, guess what? The battle's already won. It's already done. Even when you fail and you live in doubt and fear, guess what? The battle's already won. Even when you go on sinning, uh, the battle's already won. Jesus has overcome. Amen? We live in a reality now that what we experience today is temporary, and the ultimate outcome is in the hands of our Lord. The battle is won. So we're going to respond now into a time of communion. And for us, communion is just a reminder of the life that Jesus lived, the death he died, and his resurrection. And it's not just a reminder of what he did, but it's a reminder that his life now, for those of us in Christ, his life is now in us. His spirit is in us. So when we take communion, we're remembering the present reality of Jesus with us. So we take the bread and we'll take the cup. The cup is a reminder of the blood of his covenant, meaning a promise he made for you and for me that cannot be broken. So in just a moment, we have a couple people at tables up front who are going to serve communion to you. And they're going to give you the bread and remind you that it's the body of Christ that was broken for you. And the juice will be the blood of Christ that was shed for you. So go up at any time when you feel comfortable. And after you receive the elements, feel free to pray. Take it on your own. Do it as a group. Do it as a couple. However you want to take communion, it's up to you. For those of you who feel more comfortable right now still in the self-serve communion cups, we do have self-serve communion cups. They're right, in the, right out the back doors there. For those of you on the plaza or inside, you're welcome to take those if you more, feel more comfortable with that. But for us, let's remember that Jesus, through his death, and resurrection won the battle. So respond when you're ready and able, and let's use, let God move in this place. God, we give you this time.
we thank you that even as we think about the spiritual world, even as we think about the times when we maybe treat you like a good luck charm, we thank you that even in those moments, you're enough. So would you teach us now, would you remind us of your presence, and God, would you fill this place with your spirit and your presence? We give it to you in Jesus' name.